Well, it was um, a little more than 27 years ago now that I found myself as a young college student sitting in a bathroom in a men's dormitory with six other guys at midnight, a fall evening at um, Liberty Baptist College, and uh, I had this very Bible open on my knees, and uh, a young guy named Dave looked at us and he said, gentlemen, today I'm going to teach you how to study the Bible for yourself how to study it for yourself. Maybe you've been spoon-fed the scriptures up till this point, but we're going to learn together how to study the Bible for ourselves. He said, turn to James chapter 1. And I took this Bible and turned to James chapter 1. And it's still got all the markings in it from that night in September of 1979 where we began to walk through this book. By the way, it is okay to write in your Bible. Did you know that? It is okay to mark up your Bible. It's your textbook for life, really. And uh, if you want to write things in the margins and that sort of thing, that's not real. That, God does not consider that defacing his word, okay? So you just need to know that's okay. So in a sense, my journey spiritually began in this book of James. And I realized a couple months back that it has been 10 years since we as a church together walked through the book of James. And it's just too good. <laughs> There's just too much good stuff in there to neglect it. And so we have decided uh, these next upcoming weeks that together as a church, church-wide and in many of our small groups, we're going to walk through the book of James together. Now, something new we've started this year. If you happen to come on a weekend and you, you didn't bring a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible... Beginning today, uh, right in the back here, straight back on the back wall, we've got a table with a bunch of Bibles, and they're going to be loners, okay? So uh, if you need a Bible, if you'd like to follow along through the study with us this morning, you can go ahead and hop up even right now and get one, and uh, that way you can follow along with us. Just make sure you return it when you leave, okay? And that way we can use them from week to week and uh, let people have a copy of the scripture. So take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn to James chapter 1. Actually, we're going to do something before that. Take your Bible in your hand, and we've done this a number of times. This Bible's precious to me. It's um, well used, as you can see. Uh, I kind of cut my spiritual teeth on this Bible right here. I want us just to remind ourselves here at the outset of a brand new year how we feel about this book, how devoted we are to it, how much we want it to to change and transform our lives. So we have a simple little Bible pledge or Bible declaration that we've done around here a few times. And I would like us to uh, take our Bibles in hand today and let's say this aloud together. They're going to throw it up on the screens for us here, okay? Let's say this together. This is my Bible. It is the Word of God. God is who it says he is. God did what it says he did. God can do what it says he can do. I am who it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. I am ready to hear the word of God, the living and powerful word. I am ready to listen and to do it. 
and I will never be the same again. Turn to James chapter 1 if you would. And my assignment for this morning, in the time that remains, is to take one verse, (laughs) James chapter 1 and verse 1, and uh, explain it and give a little bit of a backdrop to the, the study as a whole and kind of set the stage for what we're going to be doing the next several weeks. James chapter 1 and verse 1 begins this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now if you were to give a theme to the whole book of James, the entire book, um, you could choose many things. We've chosen the theme, live it. 24-7, Live it. I think if James were here today and James was a pastor, he would look each of us in the eye and he would say, if you're saved and you know it, then your life should surely show it. He would say, don't just talk the talk, but what? Walk the walk. He would say, if you're a born-again Christian, if you have faith in Jesus in your heart, let that faith show. Let that faith produce works, produce good deeds in your life so that others may see your life and glorify God who is in heaven. Just live it, he would say. 24, 7, 365, let Jesus Christ rule your life so that you're living it out from day to day. The theme of James. James is going to paint for us in his letter a picture of what that looks like. Someone who's living it out, Day-to-day, at work, in relationships, at home, in church, the whole picture, he's going to paint for us a profile of someone who is following Jesus and living it out in their daily life. There are some um, distinctives of this book, of the book of James. I'd like to just allude to them briefly. First, James is probably the earliest New Testament letter written, uh, written probably in the neighborhood of A.D. 45, so about 15 years after Jesus walked this planet, James wrote this letter. It's very Jewish in its style, and it's quite different from the other letters of the New Testament. James, really, when you read it, it sounds more like Proverbs than it does the letters of Paul, for example. Sixty times in this letter, James just gives some short, crisp, instructions. He'll just lay it out. Do this, he'll say. Do this. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. It's just um, straight up is James' style. And James is not so concerned about Christian doctrine. He kind of assumes that. He assumes that the followers of Jesus that he's writing to understand Christian doctrine. He is more concerned about Christian ethics, behavior, conduct, how we live our lives from day to day. It's interesting, uh, the name of Jesus is only mentioned twice in James, but the teachings of Jesus are alluded to some 35 times in this book. And in fact, there are a lot of similarities between James and the Sermon on the Mount, the famous sermon that Jesus gave, and we'll find out in a moment why that is. James deals with a variety of topics, so we're going to need to just put our seatbelts on and get ready. He's going to talk about being tested by trouble, resisting temptation, becoming a better listener, becoming a better listener, becoming a better listener, and all of us will benefit from that section. He's going to talk about serving the poor, 
the nature of saving faith, overcoming bigotry and prejudice. He's going to talk about the power of our words and the impact that our words have on people. He's going to talk about true wisdom. There's a whole section on conflict, interpersonal conflict, and where it comes from and how it starts and how to resolve it. He's got a a very interesting section on spiritual warfare. He talks about how to defeat the devil. He talks about confessing sin, handling wealth, the power of humility, why it's a foolish thing to launch a smear campaign against other people. He talks about the perils of trying to play God. He has a section on planning out your future, how to respond when life seems unfair, the power of prayer. James is the book that talks about anointing with oil and the practice of that in the local church. And he finishes up by talking about why we should go the extra mile to rescue those who have backslidden. All of that and much, much more we're going to encounter in the book of James. It's a fascinating, very diverse book that deals with a variety of topics. Now, you need to know that James's approach is very practical. It's not theoretical. He's not a philosopher in some ivory tower somewhere pontificating about the Christian life. He's a pastor. He's involved in the lives of people. And so he, he's got his fingers in people's lives. He knows what people are going through. And so he's going to speak from a very practical vantage point. It's also interesting that uh, James follows the example of Jesus, and very frequently in this book he alludes to nature. He uses nature in his illustrations, just like Jesus did. Remember how Jesus would do it? He'd be walking along and he'd see a fig tree and go, oh, look, there's a fig tree. And he would draw an analogy to spiritual life from that fig tree. Well, James does a lot of the same things. He, he uses illustrations from nature. He talks about the sun and shadows and waves of the sea and forest fires and reptiles and creatures and crops at harvest time and rainstorms and other natural phenomenon that teach us spiritual lessons. It's fascinating. And James now is the only New Testament character, aside from Jesus Christ himself, to use the term Gehenna. Not Gehenna, but Gehenna. Do you know what Gehenna is? It's a, it's a Greek word, and Gehenna was actually the trash heap outside of Jerusalem. It was the dump, okay? And it was constantly on fire. They burned the trash. That's where you take your trash. That's what Gehenna was. And Jesus used Gehenna as a metaphor, an illustration of what? Of hell. He referred to Gehenna, okay? Now, Gehenna is totally different, okay? (laughs) Gehenna actually means three in one. Did you know that? It has an Indian background, and it refers to the, the three streams that meet in Gehenna. And it's actually a metaphor for the Holy Trinity, okay? Three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you've got Gehenna and Gehenna. Where would you rather live? You know? <laughs> what a difference one letter makes, right? <laughs> so anyway, James uses the term Gehenna, and only Jesus uh, used it besides him. So there's a little bit of trivia for you. Now, who wrote the book of James? James, right. But which James? You ever get confused reading the New Testament with like the Marys? You know there's like five Marys and they didn't use last names like we do, so it's like which Mary, you know, and there were four James, okay? So which James wrote the book of James? You're thinking, was it 
Was it James Dean, James Bond, James Brown? You know, who was it? Well, scholars have studied this, thankfully, and they tell us that it is not James, the father of Judas, not James, the son of Alphaeus, not James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, not James of James and John fame, okay? Remember remember that guy? James and John, Jesus called them what? The sons of thunder. Uh, Can you imagine, you know, leather jackets and the whole thing, motorcycles, sons of thunder? Jesus saw that in them, apparently. It's not that John, or excuse me, it's not that James or that John. The James who wrote this book is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. Did you know that? The Bible talks about them. It even gives us some of their names. Matthew 13, 55 tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers. Now, technically half-brothers, because their parents were Mary and Joseph, but Jesus' father was God. Okay, so technically they were half-brothers. It says he had some sisters as well. One of his brothers was named Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. One of the other brothers' names was James, this James, the James who wrote this book. So interestingly enough, Jesus had two brothers who wrote part of the New Testament. This is the James who wrote the book of James. Now, as you can imagine, initially, growing up in this household with Jesus, James um, was not a believer. I mean, can you imagine growing up with this older brother who was perfect all the time, this distressing individual who never did anything wrong and always did everything right? And you can imagine, you know, his parents looking at him and saying, why can't you be more like your brother? And he's like, I can't, he's perfect, you know. He's the son of God. And so the Bible records that Jesus' brothers and sisters did not really take very kindly to him growing up. They resented him. There was a time where they ridiculed him. And it even records that they thought he was crazy, you know. After all, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah as he grew older. And they're probably thinking, Messiah, we know you. We grew up with you. You know, what's with that? So he did not become a believer until later. And most scholars believe that James became a convert after the resurrection when Jesus, his brother, appeared to him. 1 Corinthians 15.7 says that Jesus made a special appearance post-resurrection to his brother. Isn't that cool? It's like, I'm going to go see my brother. And he's going to see that I was dead and now I'm alive again. And James became a believer. And what a believer he became. He ended up being the pastor, the lead pastor of New Life Church of Jerusalem, the first church. James became the lead pastor of that church. Galatians tells us he was visited by Paul after Paul got saved. He's referred to in Galatians 2.9 as a pillar, a pillar of the church. Strong, solid, stable, mature believer. And uh, he led the famous council at Jerusalem in uh, AD 49, I believe it took place. He was the spokesperson. So James was a a high-profile Christian leader in the early church. And uh, legend has it that he had a nickname. You know what his nickname was? Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees. Why do you think? Because of his reported prayer life, it was said that James, the brother of the Lord now, spent so much time on his knees that he developed these huge calluses. 
And so they started referring to him as old camel knees. I wonder if any of us, I mean, that doesn't sound like a great nickname, you know, but I wonder if any of us would be worthy of a moniker like that because our prayer life was so dominating of our life that we were just known as a prayer warrior, camel knees. So this is a man we should listen to. He ended up giving his life for Jesus Christ. Legend has it that he was actually shoved off the pinnacle of the temple there in Jerusalem because he wouldn't renounce his faith. And that after he hit the ground, he was stoned to death, a martyr for the cause of Christ in 62 A.D. So this is James. This is the one who wrote this book. He's got something to say to us. He was a follower of Jesus Christ to the nth degree. And um, he's going to talk to us. The recipients of this letter, says, James to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That's a reference to uh, Jewish Christians who, because of persecution, had been scattered all over the place. That's who he's writing to. And then notice his self-designation. Notice how he refers to himself. What does he call himself? James, the brother of Jesus. Is that what he says? James, lead pastor, New Life Church, Jerusalem. No? James, the boss of Christianity. He basically was. He could have written James, the servant of God. But what does he say? A servant of God and of my brother, Jesus. That's striking, isn't it? What he could have said and what he actually said. And it just brings home to me again how essential humility is for Christian leaders. Humility. You can be talented as all get out, gifted to the nth degree, have a magnetic personality, be a, have a, a charismatic persona, all of that, but if you don't have a humble heart, God's not going to bless your leadership. Whether you're leading you know, a small group, a ministry or a ministry team, or pastoring a church or being a church planner, you know what God's looking for? A humble heart. See, James saw himself not with all of his titles, but he saw himself in reference to his brother Jesus Christ And he said, you know what, I'm just a servant. (laughs) I'm one of God's many servants. I appreciate that about him. I want to mention several aspects of this servant-master relationship that I think apply to our lives. Because he took that title for a reason, or he took that label for a reason, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. What's involved in a servant-master relationship? Let me quickly mention these things. First of all, it's a surrendered relationship. When you are a servant to a master, that is a surrendered relationship. The word he chose to use, the Greek word, is the word doulos. Would you say that with me? Doulos. So you've learned two Greek words today, Gehenna and doulos. All right? Doulos meant bond slave. Basically, he said, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I'm a bond slave. I'm in bonds. I'm in chains. I am subservient to a master, and it's my brother. Can you imagine? A slave-servant relationship is a surrendered relationship. You might have heard these words rolling off of James' lips. I do not own myself. I am owned by my master. I am his and only his. I am surrendering control of every aspect of my life to him. 
Doesn't Jesus call us to that? Doesn't he call us to that? Didn't he say, you are not your own, you are bought with a price? It's a surrendered relationship. Number two, it's a subordinate relationship. Subordinate. Let me ask, is a servant above his master or beneath his master? It's beneath his master, right? James, in calling himself a servant, was saying, you know what? I don't tell him what to do. He tells me what to do. He's the boss. I'm the servant. I am under authority. I exist to please him, to do his will, to obey his orders, to carry out his instructions, and to make my master a success. That's what a servant exists for, to make his master a success. Let me ask today, are you a servant of God? Are you? Do you have the mindset that you exist to make him a success? That's what a servant does. Surrendered, subordinate, number three, it's a completely dependent relationship. In those days, a slave, a bond slave, a doulos, had no private property of their own. They owned nothing. They had no rights. They were totally dependent on their master for food, shelter, clothing, and everything else in their life. They were completely dependent. James says, that's me. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I am completely dependent upon him. Didn't Jesus even say this? Without me, you can do nothing. And the corollary, everything you do do without Jesus is nothing. It's a dependent relationship. For it's a sacrificial relationship. A servant in those days was basically dead to their own dreams. Dead to their own ambitions. Dead to their own goals. Basically, a servant was saying... Your goals are my goals. Your dreams are my dreams. I embrace your vision as my vision. Take this right, but I enjoy, one of the things I enjoy about being a pastor is seeing new lifers die. And I don't mean physically, but I mean when people in our church come to the point where they say, it's not all about me anymore. I am submitting my life to Jesus. He's my master. I'm the servant. I'm dying to all my own stuff. And I'm embracing his stuff. I love seeing that. I wonder if that could be said of us today. It's a sacrificial relationship, but we shouldn't mope around about that because number five, it's a privileged relationship. Wouldn't you agree? It is a privilege to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I mean, he is the most awesome master there is. True? We should not, we who follow Jesus should not walk around, you know, hanging our heads, talking always about how hard it is. We serve a master who loves us. Who loves us. Listen, there is no master like Jesus Christ. You can choose to serve a lot of different things, or a number of different people in your life, but there is no master like Jesus. No one gives back like he does. Have you found that out? It is a privileged relationship to serve the king. Number six, I think I made this word up. It is an unacclaimed relationship. I'm not sure if that's a word or not. An unacclaimed relationship. To be a servant of a master You have to say in your heart things like this. 
you know what? If I go unnoticed, if no one recognizes me or appreciates what I do, that's okay. I'm not in it for recognition or appreciation. In fact, I know this. My master sees everything. My master sees everything. And, and frankly, any praise I do receive, I'm going to deflect to him. This is an unacclaimed relationship. Servants are not high-profile, platform, limelight people. They're content serving in the background, making their master a success, even if no one recognizes or appreciates or rewards them for their contribution. That's what Luke 17.10 says clearly. It is an unheralded, unacclaimed relationship. And number seven, I love this, is a voluntary relationship. That's something you choose. You know, Jesus Christ does not force himself on anyone, does he? He gives us a choice. James would say, you know what? I haven't been forced. I've been invited. Mine is a voluntary enslavement to Jesus Christ. I haven't been compelled by force. I've been summoned and drawn by love. My surrender to my master is sweet because of who he is. What we've talked about today is the underpinning, the foundation for everything else we're going to talk about as we go, up, go throughout the book of James. Because James is going to paint for us a picture of a profile of a follower of Jesus, and he's going to talk to us. He's going to say, do this and do this and stop doing this. But you know what? If you don't see yourself as a servant of Jesus Christ, all that's just going to be information and not transformation. Do you understand what I'm saying? But when you see yourself as a servant, when you're saying, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. I will do what you tell me to do. I will go where you tell me to go. You're the master, I'm the servant. Then that opens the door to being transformed by the master's instructions. There's two points of application I want to draw from this today. And the first is this. It's January, right? Right here at the outset of a brand new year. What better way to start the new year than to re-clarify with the Lord your relationship? And I want to call you today to do what I'm doing myself, and that is to say to God, 2007, Lord, is about me serving you. It's about me being your servant, your slave, surrendered, subordinate, dependent, on you, your wish is my command. And just saying that to him. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would and close your eyes. And if, if you sense the Spirit of God tugging on your heart at all in that direction, I just want to ask you to say those words to Jesus Christ right now. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, this is a good thing to do, to just say, Jesus, right now, I declare myself to be your servant, like James, your servant. First and foremost, I want my life to be about serving you. After all, you purchased me with your blood. It's the least I could do. Just tell him, just from there in your seat, just tell him that I am your servant. It's not a promise to be perfect or anything like that. It's just 
clarifying the relationship with Jesus. Jesus.